We don't often start the show with you just howling. Man, I'm so glad to be back. Yeah, we're back in the steam room. I'm so glad to be back. Yeah. It's been a minute. It has, and uh, we're in the midst of the NBA playoffs, and so... uh, And this is the best time of the year. Where we see the opportunities, we slide a little steam room action in there. Uh, Charles Barkley, Ernie Johnson. This is uh, going to be good, because we've got George Foreman on the pod today, and we've got... Chris Davis, who plays George Foreman yes. in Big George Foreman, yes. which is coming out. But I'm just excited because, to me, between the playoffs, the Stanley Club playoffs, this is my most exciting time of the year. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it is a good time. And it's also a good time to, uh, to go to first of all. Well, Are you not going to reference your notes? I got my notes okay. here. I am sad. You know, I want the podcast to always be a really fun thing, silliness, and make people laugh and feel better. But there have been three shootings that really just like, man, what the hell is going on in the world? We had the young black kid get shot because he knocked on the wrong door. No questions asked. Just shot through the door twice, shot him in the head. Thankfully survived. Thankfully survived. We had the young girl in upstate New York who pulled into the wrong driveway, and this fool shoots him, this young girl. And I'm saying, man. And the Sweet 16 party in Alabama. In Alabama, my home state, uh, I think four dead, 20 injured. And you just say to yourself, man, what the hell is going on with people? it, It just, it breaks your heart. And I'm to the point now, I'm not going to take it to shit anymore. Like, I watched the news reports, and and I heard a reporter say something. She says, well, I'm just getting numb to it. Nah, 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 I'm not going to get numb to it. Nope, 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 nope. I'm not going to be like, oh, this is just part of life. I never want to be that guy or that person where I'll be like, oh, yeah, it's no big deal anymore. No, it's a big deal. And our politicians need to get get their self together. Uh, and I'm just disgusted that every single week we have to do this stuff. You know when it hits me, Chuck, is when you somebody references one of these episodes and you say, "Now, which one was that?" Yeah, because they're so prevalent. And I, you know, you watch it and it's just it makes you weary. Well, you and, know- and and I'm and I'm like. You know, we've gotten to this point where it's just it's just become the first option. Yeah, is, is some kind of gun violence has become the first option to to settling any problem that you have, and it's sad. It, it is, it, it, you, and, and the thing is, when you see these parents on television, like I saw the young girl's dad uh, on television, because you know. Uh, losing a kid, that's the worst thing can happen to a parent. But I just saw this guy on television, and they made a simple mistake, those two kids we were mentioning. The guy, if if I remember the story, he was trying to get to uh, Crescent Street instead of Crescent Avenue. Or Terrace or Avenue, yeah. Yeah. Similarly named streets. A block away. Yeah. And the guy didn't ask any questions. He just shot shot the kid. And then the young girl, they just pulled in the wrong driveway. 
And the guy didn't ask any questions. He just shouted at him. And you say, man, what world are we living in? So I just want to say, man, and, and the thing in Alabama, uh, where I'm from, and the thing that's ironic, I, pass, I passed through Dadeville a thousand times. My college roommate was actually Sam Fedden was from Dadeville. But you have to pass Dadeville to get to Auburn. So I've been there with him quite a few times. But every time I pass through there, I think about Sam and his family. And I just had to address that and just say, man, man, we got to do better. We got to do better. And, you know, uh, you know how bad I hate social media? I'm aware. I wrote this down. DeMar DeRozan's daughter yeah. was, was getting death threats. She's the one who was uh, screaming uh, Try- <laughs> while <laughs> in the game against uh, Toronto when the Raptors went to the foul line. And then they proceeded to miss half their free throws that night. And, and the Bulls beat them. And, and I just play-in. like, this is why I hate social media. What type of person are you that you have to give a, a little – she don't even think she's a teenager yet. What well, she's of, like nine years old. Why are you? Is she screaming because she wants her dad team to win? What What makes you such an evil person that you even have to write that down on the internet? Like you, you need to take a hard look at yourself in the mirror. Uh, that's one reason I I don't do social media because I don't want these idiots in my life. I don't want them to have access to me. And I never want to give them that power. But that just really bothered me that you, she's just, just cause a, a young girl wanted her dad. First of all, let me just tell you this as a player, we don't even notice that shit. <laughs> we don't even notice that the chances of the guy at the free throw line can actually hear some stuff. That you, sounds like DeMar's daughter. Yeah. yeah hey, hold it down. Yeah. I'm trying to shoot a free throw. I've t- I tell people all the time. I am so hyper-focused during a basketball game. Unless somebody's standing right next to me, it's just noise. I don't hear anything. Everything's totally blocked out. So I just want to say, man, take a look in the mirror if you're giving people death threats because they're a little kid too. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Jonathan Taze, one of the greatest hockey players of all time, just announced he's not going to go back to the Blackhawks. You know, I, I, I've got to know Patrick Kane a little bit over the years, but Jonathan Taze, I got to meet him one time, and I was a fanboy. And I just want to say, man, uh, if he wants to continue playing, he's had long-term COVID and something going on the last couple of years, so he hasn't really been able to play much. But I just want to acknowledge what an amazing career he's had, three Stanley Cups. And uh, if he wants to continue playing, bless him. If he doesn't, I just want to thank him for all the miseries the memories, excuse, excuse me. And last, I want to say... Thanks for the miseries. Yeah. Write that one down. The memories. <laughs> so I read this story about this guy named David Murphy. Um, he was a, He's an Army veteran, and he had PTSD. And he inspired me, Ernie. So he, he had PTSD, and he, he got really, really heavy. Uh, from some experience in his life. And he gained a lot of weight. And he said, his daughter asked him to play one day. And he said, 
you know dad is too big to play. And he said he went and cried. And this dude has lost 170 pounds. How about that? He's lost 170 pounds. And you know how I feel about veterans and teachers and things like yeah. that. This guy, it inspired me so much. It made me just really, I don't even know where he lived. His name is David Murphy. He's lost 100. How'd you find out about that? I was reading it somewhere. Sadness to Happiness was the article about it. He says, yeah, my daughter asked me to work out, go play with her. And I couldn't play with her. And he says he's lost 170 pounds. He just inspired me. And I just want to say, David Murphy, thank you for being a veteran first and foremost. But, man, go, go. that's awesome. Motivation takes a lot of different forms. It does, Chester. doesn't it? You know, I, some are motivated by money or whatever, but sometimes it's something as, I want as to play, much as I want, I want to play with my daughter I and I can't with, do it in this condition. I, and, it, and it just, like, I was like, man, it just warmed my heart. Yeah. And story. last and, and definitely not least, Lance Reddick, the actor who just passed away, You'll know him from The Wire. You'll know him from the John Wick movies. I was a huge fan. And, man, he passed away like at 50-something, like uh, like in the last month. And I just want to say, man, what, I felt the same way about him. I felt about Michael K. Williams. When I heard the news, it broke my heart. And he had just did all the interviews for the new John Wick movie. And he passed away peacefully, I guess. They found him in his house and no things. And I just want to say, Lance Reddick, man, you had a brilliant career and you left us too soon. And let me just tack on to that. Um, our condolences to a couple of colleagues, yes. Tony Lamb from yes. uh, NBA TV, uh, who recently lost his wife, and Michael Winslow, who works upstairs in, yes, our, uh, his brother. in our highlight operation and... Uh, and has at his disposal every clip that you'd ever want to see involving inside the NBA, and he and he's responsible often for yeah. calling those up immediately. And yeah, lost his lost his brother who was in his fifties, and so uh, we're thinking about them. And, yeah. and and we love you, Tony, and we love you, Winslow. Yeah, and they're back here at, at work, and uh, we're just kind of wrapping our arms around. Yeah, them. man. There you go. We're a family here. And we welcome you back inside the steam room. Chuckster, I don't know how you started your day or if you've gotten a workout in today. I'm no. going to assume that answer would be no. That'd be a hard no. Yeah, it, 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 it's noon Eastern as we as we record this episode of the pod. Um, um, here's here's some video of, uh, of a nice workout that uh, you can do even when you're 74 years old. Man, my dad still got it. You still got that power, Dad? Power doesn't age. Are you ready? Let me see what you got, Jack. Show me what you got, George. I'm ready for a comeback again. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a fireworks display that going was, off that right was there, impressive. man. And uh, so how'd you like to talk to George Foreman? This would, is going to be would awesome. Would that make your day? Yes. Let's bring the champ in. Hello, champ. Big George Foreman coming out April 28th, by the way. And uh, man, what a pleasure it is to see you again. Thank you so much for taking some time with us. Love you guys. Happy to be with you. Do you, do you, 
do that every day? No, I wouldn't be around if I tried that every day. <laughs> but I still love the workouts, the punching bag, the bicycle, and all of that. You that's the curse of being an athlete. You got to rest work out for the rest of your days. You know, before we get into the movie, I want to say, number one, it's an honor and a privilege every time I see you, and thank you for being on the podcast. You have had an extraordinary life. You go from boxing champion to pastor to boxing champion to entrepreneur. You have had an extraordinary life. Can you give us like a little synopsis on those four avenues of your life? Yeah, when you have 10 kids like me, like I had, man, you have all kind of lives that keep coming because you got to feed all those kids. Rough life, but I enjoyed it. I started off the most magnificent moment of my life was becoming an Olympic gold medalist. <laughs> what a big part of my life and champion of the world, facing Joe Frazier, even Muhammad Ali, losing to him, and then having to stop boxing, become a preacher, then starving again, have to come back and be heavyweight champion of the world again for uh, 20 years later. My gracious. <laughs> it's, it's quite a story. And look, I, I'm old enough. I know Chuck, you were you were alive when it when this was going on, but I remember as you know, I, I was twelve years old watching the uh, the Olympics in uh, Mexico City in nineteen sixty eight, and and we, and we can see the photo uh, there in the background uh, of George with the small American flag when you walked around and, and waved the American flag after winning the gold medal. And are you staying, saying that that is still the moment of your life? Boxing wise, the greatest moment of my life. I was 19. I'd never had a dream to come true ever in my life. Every day I kept thinking I can do something else. So I never, uh, all the other babies come second to the Olympics. You know, Ernie, I, I will say this I've been blessed to go to the Olympics twice. And it is, I agree with Mr. Foreman, it is when you're standing up there and they're playing the national anthem, I, that I, I couldn't believe the chills I was getting in my body, you know. I, and I I had a, did a lot of really fun stuff, but when you're standing on the podium and they're playing the national anthem, you feel a certain type of way. My heart was racing. I was getting goosebumps. So I know exactly what he's talking about. And we can see you nodding uh, as Charles describes that too. What a description! What that is exactly the way it is, and I had no idea that even feeling existed. Had my colors on, my uniform, and I thought, boy, let me get back to Fifth Ward in Houston, Texas, and show them this. What a what a day in my life. I want you to touch on 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 your, the entrepreneurial part of your life, being a spokesman, because I want to thank you for teaching us us athletes how to go into other aspects, learn to sell products and things like that. How did this whole thing with the grill come about? Well, I had been the darling of Madison Avenue. I did a McDonald's, Monica Mufflers, you name them. <laughs> and then one friend of mine said, look, George, you're making all these other people, uh, companies wealthy. Why don't you get your own product? It was scary. And there wasn't any money up front. I had to work it. Next thing you know, I was shocked because I thought I'd only get maybe 15 of those things. One for my aunt, one for my cousin. <laughs> 120, <laughs> 120 million of those things sold. I couldn't believe it. I'm yeah. still shocked. And I'm and I'm wondering if um, look I bet I mean I'm thinking a lot of the folks who have bought that grill were like oh you used to box too 
Yeah, I'd make speeches to kids and uh, teachers tell them, tell them about your life, George. And I'd talk to these uh, kids and head start. They said, that's the cooking man. They didn't even believe me. <laughs> the grill had taken over everything. Mr. Foreman, how much did your faith mean to you? The first time around, all I had was a, lot, a big chip on my shoulder, a lot of hate and uh, vengeance and all of that. And uh, after I lost that and I found religion the second time around, after 10 years out of boxing, my faith was like, if you run out of everything else, you always got a prayer. And that's what faith meant to me. I could pray and then all things would turn out just fine. I never could. I don't know how I made it without faith. You know, in, in your career, um, and you, we think of the we think of the bouts and we think of like people always say, down goes Frazier. You know, they quote yeah. Howard Cosell. That was from George Foreman's fight with Joe Frazier. Down goes Frazier. So yeah. for years, you've been hearing that. You've been hearing, you know, people talk about rope-a-dope. That was, that was uh, George Foreman taking on Muhammad Ali. These were, these were events that just transcended the sport. What was it like to be part of those with the, with the eyes of the world on you? Yeah, especially Joe Frazier. He wasn't big, but he was the only fellow that I was afraid of. He had beaten everybody, knocked Muhammad Ali down, beaten everybody. I was afraid of him. So when I knocked him down, boy, I said, I better do it again. I better do it again. After six times, he kept getting up. I was declared champion of the world. First and last time, I was really happy about a victory. And then the rumble in the jungle. I call it the mugging in the jungle. <laughs> And uh, rope a dope, I'm the dope. <laughs> I let him live like a dope. Kept throwing punches until I got tired. What a fantastic fighter he been. He is, was. So now let's talk about the movie. What's the number one thing you want people to learn about you and the message you want to get out about the movie? I started off. I was watching a movie. You know, you talk a lot. You write a lot. But then I see a part of the movie where my mom is moving into these old houses. You see rusty refrigerators and stoves. They were abandoned because they didn't work. And I sat there and cried. Because, you know, in life you go by thinking about my income tax and what I'm going to make on this. And realize there were real times I didn't even have hope. You can go wake up and not even know what hope and success and goal setting goals. I didn't have anything like that. And I cried. It made me remember. I'm glad I did see the movie. It made me, it touched me. Chris Davis, who played George Foreman, outstanding actor. How did the conversations, uh, as Chris Davis is trying to get a handle on playing you, uh, what kind of conversations are had between the two of you? And, and are there things you emphasize that you say, look, you got to get this right if you want to portray me? Yeah, the uh, George Tillman, who was the... Uh, director of the movie he, he so much imagination but i got chris davis a couple of times we met and i told him look me in the eye I, and he turned away i said i said look me in the eye and he looked i said and don't move until you see yourself in my eyes he said i got it and that was the uh i think the most uh telling moment because he looked me in the eyes and saw himself and he became george foreman for a moment you know i i i, I sympathize with you I think about growing up, I grew up in a in a town in Alabama, a couple thousand people living in the projects. My mom was a maid. My grandmother worked in the in the in the meat factory. And there was I didn't because you don't even realize you're poor 
until later in life. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, right. I, I, I was like, man, we were really poor. And I remember my grandmother bringing those chicken feet home like once every two or three weeks. She because you had to eat like a hundred chicken feet to get like one good solid meal out of it. And I remember my mom. She said, "Yeah, I'm going." I said, "What do you do?" She said, "I clean people houses." And I was like, "Oh, my mom. She cleans people houses." And then you like, man. And then I look at my life. Uh, I go to college, and then I move my. I get back and I build my mom and grandmother a house. And you know, you just like. I agree with you, Mr. Foreman. Like, sometimes you have to pinch yourself to look at the level of success. Because I go from having a mom as a maid and grandmother in the meat, and they like, then I'm able to build them a house and give them success, and I'm successful. And you look at my life, and it's, it's amazing. And I guess that's the point you want to make about the movie. That's right. You know, I'd gone through years, I mean, years, a big boy before I realized Chicken had other parts other than feet. <laughs> I didn't know anything about drumsticks and, and breasts, but chicken feet, oh, we ball them, bake them, fry them. Uh, you shouldn't have brought that up. <laughs> <laughs> hey, how did, um, did you take an immediate like to boxing? No, I didn't want to be a boxer. I was a, I wanted to be a street fighter. But I'd gone into the job court and listening to Cassius Clay then before he changed his name. He was fighting and all the kids fighting Floyd Patterson after the match was over. Everybody said, George, you're such a bully. Why don't you become a boxer? I took them at it. And I took them up on it and went out and tried boxing. Doc Broders, Forrest Whitaker played that part in the movie. And uh, so I just tried to knock them out. I'd close my eyes and look down, and there would be someone on the canvas. I didn't realize it, that I could box. And I wanted to run from it, but Doc Brodus kept me at it. He said, you can be a champion. You can be an Olympic champion. But I didn't want to be a boxer, man. You get hit so hard sometimes, you see triple of one guy. No, <laughs> four times, five times of one guy. Yeah, I was going to ask you, too, because... Look, I've got no experience in this realm, okay? So I want to know on the giving end and on the receiving end, like when you know you've connected just so. I mean, like a lot of times a golfer hit a ball 375 and it's, it's like he didn't even feel it. Or a guy will hit a 400-foot home run and it's like, I didn't yeah. it, Is it that way in, in boxing too? Or when you land the perfect punch? I tell you, my greatest weapon was my fear. And I'd get these knockouts. How I did it, how I felt, I can't explain to you. But it was wonderful when the match were over. I know that. You know, you you. I asked you earlier about your faith. When did when did you know? You said you had a, a chip on your shoulder. When did you turn to religion? Well, I'd lost the title, of course, in Africa. Then I fought my way all the way back to the number one contendership. And, uh, of course, I fought Jimmy Young in Puerto Rico. And I went back. I'd gone 12 rounds. I thought I won the fight. You know, all boxers think they win. But I went back and I had experience. In a split second, I was dead and alive again. Over my head, under my feet was nothing but nothing. And there was no more of me. I tried to make a deal. I'm still George Foreman. I can give money for cancer and charity. And I heard a voice say, I don't want your money. I want you to be dead the worst thing that could happen to someone. But when I, I got upset, I said, I don't care if this is death. I still believe there's a God. When I said that, a gigantic hand reached out, pulled me out of nothingness, and I was in that dressing room. 
And I let, they laid me on the table, but then they picked me off the floor, and I saw blood on my head and forehead. I started screaming, Jesus Christ was coming alive in me, and I didn't believe in that stuff. I thought it was for losers. And 10 years, I didn't stop preaching on the street corners, uh, started a youth center in Houston for kids who didn't have anything to do. I never intended to go back to boxing, but that profound occurrence, I became broke, <laughs> had to go back. That's interesting, like, because, you know, I have heard people exp explain the same thing you said before. But I want to ask you this. Who, who are some of the most biggest influential people in your life? Oh, there were many of them. The, the first one that I saw, it was a great quarterback from old days, Johnny Unitas and the, and the great running back, Jim Brown. Yeah. They did a public service uh, commercial said, if you're looking for a second chance, Join the Job Corps. And I took them up on it. I joined the Job Corps. And that's where I discovered things. Like I told you earlier, I had hope. Three meals in one day. I still haven't recovered from that. Three meals. And, uh, and that's where I, I learned to box. But Jim Brown had a great impact on my life. And then there were so many of them. Uh, you know, I saw Wilk Chamberlain get out of a Volkswagen on a commercial once. And I, I looked at that and enjoyed it. That's what I wanted most, too, was a Volkswagen in life, a Volkswagen. <laughs> Do you guys know that 30 years ago you shared a cover of a Jet magazine? I didn't know that. 1993. Oh, man, Montel Williams. Are bald men appealing? Uh, hey, I love Montel Williams and Charles Dutton, but I haven't seen Montel in 100 years, but that's funny. <laughs> you know what's crazy? Uh, growing up, we used to call that the Black Bible because my mother and grandmother, we, we got jet. We got jet religiously. We say the Black Bible's here, and we went through it because you couldn't wait to see the centerfold every week. Uh, it's just like that's I got to go find that copy of Jet Magazine. That is beautiful. <laughs> hey, uh, I, let, me, let me ask you, um, you talked about all the kids you have, but the, the, everybody's, all, the, all the guys are George. Right. So how did yep. that how did that all come about? How did you decide on naming George the first and George the second, et cetera, et cetera? You know, uh, I told my wife, I said, look, I'm going to box. But if I forget one of my kids name, I'm going to stop boxing. <laughs> oh, this so is I named so... him all George. <laughs> <laughs> you are. Come on, man. <laughs> if you're going to be a good boxer, you got to make make preparation. You got to save money. Preparation for becoming broke. And then preparation for memory loss. <laughs> so I got them all. When You know, my mom, when I was little, she I'd get upset with me. And by the time she called my name, I'd gone out the door. She called all the other kids' names, but not me. I'd just say George, and they all come. <laughs> you know, how long have you been married? Uh, about 40 years. You and me both. But I had some trials coming up. I met a lot of failures, but... I finally met someone who really cared about me and uh, really made a good man out of me. I love my marriage. What's a typical day like for you now at the age of 74? Well, you, like I said earlier, I'm always looking for a way to work out right in where my home is built, where they have a, a 3,000 uh, 3, square feet of gym. And right on the edge of it is a, a, a kitchen. And I realize if I want to eat what I want, I got to go to that gym. And let me tell you, I start my day off by trying to work out a lot of walking. And I raise dogs, German shepherds. They're a lot of friends. So I'm out there 
training and working with my dogs, but I travel around the world speaking as much as I can as well. I was going to say, who and who do you enjoy speaking to more? Uh, like the business community, businessmen and women, or youth? The hardest thing is to make children listen. And uh, so that's the greatest challenge is to go out and speak to young kids because you may get one point over. I was 16 years old, I remember, and Carl Hemp, a guy who had been Mr. Uh, Olympia, and he did a push-up with the heaviest guy in a job course and on his back, and I listened. He said, some of you guys are fighting because of the names you're being called. He said, you're an American. That's your name. Nobody can ever take that away from you. It tore me apart. And I'd never listened to one speech before. So it's a challenge for me to go out and speak to young people. It is. And maybe get one point over, not two or three, just one point over. But that's the real value of that, too, though, uh, Mr. Foreman, isn't it? That, look, you can put yourself in those positions that you were sitting in those seats listening to somebody. You never know what's going to land with one person at one time that makes a, a, a life-changing episode out of that. That's it. That No better said. Well, I, I just want to say this. Uh, I, I've told you this when I saw you. I said, I just want to say thank you for setting a, a great example for, for all the young brothers. You have two lives. You have your life as an athlete, but then you have to go on and try to be successful. And it's not easy to be successful once you retire because you don't have really have a lot of formal education you really don't want to go get a nine to five. What you did in the business world has really inspired and helped. I said the same thing when I see Junior Bridgman, Dave Bing. Uh, when I see those guys, I say, hey, man, thank you all for teaching us how to be businessmen and, and entrepreneurs. So I just want to say thank you for that, Mr. Foreman. And thank you, because I watch that television show more interesting sometimes, well, a lot of times than the basketball game. <laughs> and Ernie, I love that. And you can always have a joke with uh, Charles Barkley. You make it all happy. I love it. And thank you for that. Thank you. We get to do that job. You know, it's it's yeah. a lot of fun. We're just, you know, we show up and watch hoop. And that's uh, and we're just like the guys on the couch, just watching the game and and, and reacting to it and Thankfully, uh, folks have liked watching it. And oh, I, I got I got to ask him a, a boxing yeah. question. Do you watch boxing anymore? I still like boxing. I like Tyson Fury, uh, Deontay Wilder, and Anthony Joshua. Well, those are my favorite big guys. They can punch. They could have existed in any era. And that Canelo Alvarez is my favorite in the lighter weights. Well, we got a big one Saturday night. I'm getting. I, I'm trying to get all the guys together. We got Tank Davis against Ryan Garcia. And so I'm actually glad. Do you do you ever get mad? Because in your day, all the great fighters fight each other. But today, none of the great fighters want to fight each other. I mean, we're still waiting for Spence and, and Crawford. We finally got Tank Davis and Garcia Saturday, but Spence, Spence won't, and Crawford won't fight. Uh, uh, Canelo needs to fight Benavides also. Is that different for you? Like, you wanted to fight the best in your day, correct? Uh, well, I had to because there was no way of making a dollar unless I fought those tough guys. If I had to do all over again, man, I'd fight Pee Wee Herman. <laughs> you know what? I'd, I'd take you over Pee Wee. <laughs> guys, guys would hurt you, man. <laughs>
George Foreman, what an honor it's uh, it's been for us to have you uh, on the steam room. I didn't I didn't even tell him the the only rule of the steam room because I you know I, I I'm not going to give any rules. But the you've obeyed the only rule, and that is when you're in the steam room with us, you keep your towel on, and and we appreciate you doing that. <laughs> Thank you so much, guys. I enjoyed every moment. Thank you, Mr. Foreman. Have a great day. God bless you. All the best. That's How awesome. About that, Chuck That's awesome. You know, Ernie, I've met him quite a few times, man. He is so pleasant. And I love when he talks about the way he used to be, because I've only met the way he is now. Man, it's, was he when he was working that heavy bag? Ooh, that hurt. Yeah. That sound like it hurt. <laughs> and but he did say something. He said, power doesn't age. So unless in except in your case. Yeah. See, that was unnecessary. We just had a pleasant interview. I should go hit a heavy bag now. See if I got the power. Punch yourself. <laughs> oh, it's gone. <laughs> Ernie Johnson, Charles Barkley, back with you here in the steam room. This is going to be fun. So we've already spoken to George Foreman. Uh, and now we're going to speak to George Foreman again. <laughs> yes, we are, <laughs> yes, as a matter of fact. Uh, Chris Davis, who plays George Foreman in Big George Foreman, coming out April 28th, joins us now. And uh, we appreciate the time, Chris. Thank you very much. How you doing, man? I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm honored to be here. Hey, so George just told us when he met you, he said, hey, man, stare into my eyes. And then you said you looked away and said, no, no, stare, stare in my eyes until you see me. No, nah, man, it was it was uh, a bit strange. You know what I mean? I mean, we, we were just sitting at the gas station. And he randomly whips over and he's like staring in my eyes. And I'm like, you know, this is George Foreman, man. Like, what, what is he talking about? <laughs> you know, and he asked me to stare into his eyes until I found myself. And when I did, he told me that, that that's what he was doing when he was looking at his opponents, looking for himself. And I thought that that was an interesting um, analogy for who he who he was and what he was always doing in his life and a way to go about telling a story. Right. That he's always trying to find himself until he does, you know, uh, by the grace of God. So wait, so let me ask you, are you a boxer or had you boxed before? No, I never boxed before. My first time. So how much training <laughs> yeah. did you do? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, we, we started training uh, in July of 2020 and I started training with Daryl Foster, um, who I believe is a fight guru. You know, he trained Will Smith for Ali as well. So, um, it was about five, six hours a day from the beginning. Wow. And I had never done anything like that before. You know, if you've ever done any type of boxing workouts, things like this, just an hour and a half, two hours is, is enough. But we were in there five, six straight away, you know, um, for several months. I mean, I had at that time 17 fights to learn, you know, um, for the film. <laughs> uh, so 17 different guys to come in. And uh, coach said, you know, Chris, we're going to treat this like a fight camp. We're not going to treat it like you're training for a film. We're going to treat it as though you're training for the heavyweight championship belt. And that's the way we went about it. So you're learning this this craft of boxing. And at the same time, you're trying to become George Foreman. Um, and physically, you're you're having to go up in weight, go down in I mean... This was this was a challenge. Take me through how you, basically, how you were making weight for for the shooting of this film. Mm. Well, I'll say you know the, one of the one of the things that I didn't allow myself to be challenged by was trying to become George Foreman because you know that that's a trap. 
I'll never be George Foreman, right? I can always just be myself and try to do an honest interpretation of Mr. Foreman's story. And that's what I had to go into it with. So when it came to making weight, I wanted to be as um, period specific as I possibly could with my body. So uh, in the beginning, the first half of the film, you know, because we cover a span of several decades, we did the younger years, teenage years, and then all the way up to uh, heavyweight champion between 28 and 32. But we shot out of sequence. So week by week, I was changing my weight. So this week, I would be young George, and I'd be 228 pounds. Next week, I got to be heavyweight champ. So I would start by like halfway through the week to get my weight up to be 242 by the time we started filming for the Joe Frazier fight or something like that. Then we took six weeks off because I had to do George in his later years when he gained all that weight. And uh, I had a plan. The nutritionist gave me, uh, was it 4,000 calories a day? Wow. When I was uh, just at home hanging out, 5,000 calories a day when I was on set. It was 6,000 calories a day when I was doing some boxing training, but I was never going to make weight. And I had committed to doing this and I, and I didn't want to leave any stone unturned and I didn't want to wake up after the job was done wishing that I would have went a little harder. So I mixed and matched the program and I bumped it up to 7,000 calories a day. And in five weeks, I went from 225 to 275. Jeez, wow. And the heaviest I, yeah, the heaviest I got was 282. What are you right now? 230. <laughs> <laughs> Is that your real weight, 230? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's my normal weight, yeah. You know, I, I've seen actors talked about gaining weight. I, I saw De Niro talked about gaining like 75 pounds to play uh, when he was in Untouchables. And there's a couple other actors that like they did. Shalice uh, Theron gained, she says, I gained 50 pounds to play in that movie Monster. Like, that's got, was, was that hard? It was. It was hard um, physically in the first week and a half because honestly, if I would have had let's say six months to gain the weight, it wouldn't have been as intense. It would have just been kind of gradual, you know, but I had, I had six weeks before we came back to start filming. So the intensity in which I had to gain the weight, you know, um, I, I saw stars, man. Like I was seeing stars. All I could do was eat. I would see stars. I would pass out. I'd wake up, I'd eat, <laughs> I'd see stars, I'd pass out. And that was basically the first week, week and a half. Uh, and the body, you know, you, at a certain point, everything you eat feels like swallowing glass, man. It would take me two hours to finish <laughs> a, plate of, a plate of food, you know? Um, but the the thing about the shifting of the body that was interesting was the psychological effects it took, you know? Because uh, here I am, just had one of the best bodies in my adult life, you know, playing Mr. Foreman during the heavyweight champion years. And uh, I got this fro. Now I'm growing a beard and all this weight is coming on my body. And I'm looking at myself in the mirror and I started to feel kind of sad, you know, depressed and not really feeling, uh, feeling invested in having this change happen to my body, you know, you know, cause doubt comes, you know, and you got to figure out a way to overcome it. And one day I was looking in the mirror, man, and I, I shaved all the hair off my head. I shaved my beard off and I took my shirt off and I looked in the mirror and I could see where I was going, I could see the heavy, the heavy Mr. Foreman coming into fruition. And that's when I knew that every single calorie that I was putting in my body, that I was going to put in my body was worth the sacrifice. 
Hey, we were talking to Michael B. Jordan a few weeks ago, talking about the, the Creed series and and talking about, you know, in the filming of, of all the fight scenes, that every now and then a punch gets through and a guy gets tagged. It happened to you? Well, we did it intentionally. It, there were um, there were no accidental tagging. I mean, um, we, we, like I said, we treated it like a fight camp, so there was some sparring, a lot of sparring that happened. Um, and when it came to filming the fights, we all, every single fighter that showed up for this film was willing to go to distance and make that sacrifice. And we all trusted each other. And, you know, all that time we spent in the gym with each other, you know, we had a bit of a uh, comradeship. So when it came to filming, we wanted to make sure we were all authenticating these fights um, and, and the fighters that they were representing, you know, uh, because a lot of these fighters that came through are actual fighters you know, or have some experience in fighting. So they respect the history and the legacy of boxing. So we got tagged. Um, the only punches in the film that are that are misses are the ones that missed, you know, that missed in the actual fight because we were fight specific. Every punch is intentional. And the way we were throwing punches, everybody got tagged, you know, uh, in that Ali fight, uh, I was tearing Ali's body up. It was real, you know, extras were, were oohing and eyeing and, you know, then when Ali started coming back and started tagging me in my face, they were oohing and on. But, you know, we wanted to uphold the legacy. And and by the grace of God, nobody got a black eye, busted lips, swollen head, knocked out. You know, I think I had a flash knockout at one point, though. <laughs> Cedric Boswell punched me in my mouth. You know? <laughs> like, he hit me. He hit me with a one shot. Now, Cedric, he's so strong. And he doesn't have like a chill button. His chill button is like most people's 100. <laughs> and he hit me. Boom. All I heard was the, poof. I saw, I saw darkness. And then I saw the floor. All I saw was blue. And then I look up and all I could see was him as a blur, you know? So yeah, I call it the SETI special, you know? <laughs> Chris, where are you, where, where are you from? I'm from uh, Camden, New Jersey. We can't overlook the fact that, look, you're a, you're a, a theater, a stage actor. Um, on Broadway, Death of a Salesman, all black cast, Biff. Um, yeah, yeah. What, what is that like? That, you know, this is, it's nothing like doing a film. This is live audience. This is lights. This is lines. Ex explain to me the feeling that goes through your body um, uh. on a night like that. And, and is there a fear is there ever a fear, and this is going to sound like a stupid question, is there a fear of forgetting a line? Uh, yes, everybody for, fears forgetting a line. And everybody forgets a line in their life. <laughs> you know, um, it's the craziest feeling when you forget a line. It's like you're, you can just taste copper in your mouth and there's this high-pitched sound that happens and you're a little disoriented. But if you have cast members who are smart enough and quick enough, they can kind of get you back on track, you know, uh, but being on stage, being on, on a Broadway stage is, there's nothing like, it. you know, uh, that's the highest level of theater you can, um, achieve as a theater artist and doing death of a salesman on Broadway, like doing big George Foreman felt like a huge responsibility. You know, it's the first time we're telling this story with an all black cast and, and the legacy of this, this play so deep and rich and uh being able to bring our perspective and our experience to this play um was important to me i read this play back in 2017 and 
wanted to do it ever since. So having the opportunity to do that um, was was a blessing. And I, there's no way the way I could describe being on stage on a Broadway stage is like a lot like playing sports. Right. It's, I oftentimes say doing theater is the closest thing to playing a team sport because you have to do you have to make sure you're on your assignment. You got to be where you say you're going to be. You got to show up. You know, if if one person fails during that show, we all fail, you know, and we're all here to change lives. And when you're sitting in front of a thousand people performing, there's a responsibility. There's a responsibility to their human experience. There's a responsibility that you have to change their minds. It's a little more tactile than a film. You get to not see them, hear, like smell them, smell the walls, smell where they're at, you know, it's, see things moving around. You can kind of shift their perspective with film and TV, but with theater, it's right there in your face. It's something that you can really touch. It's so tangible. And um, it's, it's, it's like being in church. I oftentimes say doing theater is like being in a pulpit for me. It's a spiritual experience. And I'm sure it's that way for a lot of actors. And I'm sure it's that way for a lot of audience members too. Hey, Chuck, you realize that, that Chris and I um, were both uh, in the same film. Uh, we were both in Space Jam: A New Legacy. Oh, so Lord. so that's why it's that's why it's so special when he and I can sit here and just talk the craft. You mean the movie, y'all? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you, you mean they call that they call that plagiarism? Because y'all y'all copied Space Jam. That's called oh, plagiarism. Chuckster. Oh, Chuckster! Well, I'm just jabbing you, man. Chris Davis, man, it's a pleasure talking to you, and. Uh, we look forward to watching Big George Foreman on April 28th. and uh, Continue success, my brother. Yeah, appreciate you. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate it. That's Camden. I spent a lot of fun times in Camden. That's right across the bridge from Philly. Mm-hmm. A lot of fun nights over there. Well, I think that's all I need to know about uh, that. Me and uh, Franchines on Monday night. How many years ago are we talking now? At 85, 86. <laughs> Franchines every, every it's Monday like it night. happened yesterday. Hey, every Monday night, Franchines. Wednesday night was, uh, forget the name of that club, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Chuck and Ernie in steam room. Come and join us in steam room. Chuck and Ernie in steam room. Leave your towel on in steam room. Chuck and Ernie in the steam room. Chuck and Ernie in the steam room. Leave your tie alone in the steam room. So we're back, and uh, oh, this is the not only I... is this the answering machine segment. Yeah. Oh, but okay. The legendary Tim Kylie joining us for the see for this segment uh, uh, because he... we had two guests. Fight oh, you taking a bullet for the team? Yeah, I'm yeah. taking a bullet for the team. You must, not, you must not be doing much today in this segment. You come up with no notes. Normally I know. You well, got to shoot a I, paper. I you got something. Yeah, I know. I, well, I, I'm learning from George Foreman how to remember everything. But, so you yeah. know, just everything will be the same. So we'll go from there. But, All right. Anybody remember Chuck Wepner? Yeah. Of course. Okay, the Bayonne Bleeder. The bleeder. Yeah. And he was the inspiration for Rocky. Rocky saw him fight, or Stallone saw him fight. He denied it for a while, but eventually it all came out that they did know each other. But uh, Wepner, in a documentary, said. Uh, when he was getting ready to leave for the fight, he turned to his wife and said, Honey, buy your best negligee because tonight you're going to be sleeping with the heavyweight champ of the world. 
And when he came back all battered and bruised, she said, am I going to his room or is he coming here? (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Tremendous. Also haven't heard the word negligee in quite a while. (laughs) There you go. Well, get that on the steamer. Hey, that's, that's, there's certain words that you use and then you know you're old. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like like dungarees, uh, dungarees. No, because I still dungarees. I, I, yeah, galoshes. Yeah. Yeah, I still yeah, use gal- galoshes is an old word. <laughs> I've had a couple of business proposals come across my desk, and I says, "Oh, we gonna discuss the pot thing?" They're like, "Yeah, we don't call it pot. That's from the seventies and eighties. It's called cannabis now." Uh, I was like, yeah. "Oh, okay, my bad. I'm sorry. I'm not a pothead." <laughs> <laughs> like, Wait till Charles comes out with his line of. Uh, Freshly ironed, creased dungarees. <laughs> there you go. Hey, let's do a. Hey, you know the number for your answering machine? Take a no. shot at it. Uh, Take a shot. 404. Yes. 987. Yes. 0333. 0330. Oh, very Damn, close. Well done, Chuck. That was very impressive. See, when you put your mind to something, well, Cap like was telling me. Was he really? Oh. See, Cap, see how I messed up that last number? Because that's the one he didn't give you. <laughs> no, he gave me that one, but I didn't want y'all to know. If I'd have got it right, y'all would have known I was cheating. All right, first call. Hello, world. This is Charles Barkley. Leave me a message. Hey, Chuck and Ernie. This is Eldrick, loyal steamer from right here in Atlanta. Huge fan of the podcast and a huge fan of you two gentlemen. Ernie, I loved your last book. And Chuck, my wife actually met you a couple of weeks ago and took a picture with you and has been rubbing it in my face ever since. She said you were incredibly nice, so thank you for that. My question today is actually for TK, the legendary long-time producer of Inside NBA. <laughs> TK, when did you first know that Chuck and Shaq would work well together? Thank you, guys. Love the show. Have a great day. Wow. Are you uh, able to answer that that question or is still, the jury still, it's still out? The jury's still, no, still, still out. out. <laughs> it, is, it is. It is still out. Um, no, actually, uh, this was 100 years ago, back in the day when uh, the early 2000s, when San Antonio and, and L.A. were always playing each other in the Western Conference yeah. Finals. And we were in San Antonio. You were working for us. And Shaq was still playing for the Lakers. And you took us all out on a uh, excursion to the Riverwalk. Uh, it's not a river; it's a dirty little, little creek. creek. I know, and, and, and see, Victoria's Secret's a secret, and all that other stuff. Um, but we were walking across this parking lot, and a big limo pulled by, black windows tinted, all this stuff, and passed us. Just looked ominous. And all of a sudden, I hear it screech to a stop, and a door opens, and this voice yells. Charles Barkley, and I and I t- I'm going. Oh, here goes. We're going to be fighting and all this other stuff. And I turn around and it's Shaq. He gets out of the car and runs up and tackles you. And you're the two of you guys in your ten thousand dollars suits, wrestling in a, a shitty parking lot in, in San Antonio. And when I saw that, I said, if we can get that guy on the show, we'll have something special. See, and there's uh, your legend. See, you ask what makes. The legendary longtime producer of Inside the NBA, legendary. It's foresight like that, and and seeing in that one episode on a San Antonio street in a parking lot, uh, well, the potential for Inside the NBA. Well, first and foremost, shout out to my tailor KW Wong. My suits are like eight hundred, nine hundred dollars. Uh, what people don't understand about me and Shaq, our moms were best friends. The night we got to fighting, our moms called us in the locker room. 
and make us go out to dinner after the game. <laughs> and I'll never. Paid. Uh, I always pay. You know that. Already. I know you do. Yeah. You know, and the thing is, uh, it's another lady named Martha Corman who's a saint also. But they came and spent my mom's last few days with her. They, oh, were, wow. they, they were three triplets. And so me and Shaq been friends behind the scenes a long time. I used to get mad at my mom because they would take like four or five vacations a year and I would get the bill and I'd be like, Mom, I don't make the type of money Shaq did. <laughs> you can't just be going on vacation spending out of control. She says, well, I got to pay my part. I says, yeah, pay cheaper parts. Uh, so we've been together for a long time, and uh, I enjoy working with the big fella. Next call. Hey, this is Cam from Boston. I was just calling to see if you could fill me in on some of your best Craig Sager stories. I would love to hear them. Thanks. Hmm, Sager. Oh, man. Number one, you know, we still talk to Stacy and the kids. Yep. But my favorite Sager stories is... I went, he took me to meet his mom and dad. And, and I made the mistake of cracking jokes about his outfit. I thought his mom was going to kill me. I said, Miss Sager, I was just joking around. I just joked. She did not, you know, you know how when you talk about somebody, kids, they go yeah, crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my God. I thought his mom was going to kill me. I said, Sager, I almost didn't get out of there alive. You know what I'll always remember about Segs is that we, we used to play, uh, uh, like a company golf tournament called the Carmo Classic off uh, oh, uh, yeah. named, oh, named Carmo for Chris Carmody. And so invariably, uh, Sager's team would come out of nowhere. You know, oh. you'd, you'd run into them on the on the course. How are you guys hitting them? Oh, you know, yeah. we're like four under. Okay, good. And then by the then later in the day, everybody's got their stuff, their cards turned in. And then here comes Sager's cart around the corner. It's almost as if they had said, "Okay, what's the what's, what's the score?" The score. Uh, twelve twelve unders got the got the lead. Hey, we're, we're thirteen. 13. Yeah. yeah, he uh, he won that thing so often that there should have been an investigation. And, and, and the one thing I'll never forget about Sager, him going running in those speedos. Oh my god! I could never unsee that. Yeah, like when we're when we're traveling, he would go running, and you like, is that correct, Sager in a speedo? It wasn't the speedo. It was like those little tiny ass shorts. Yeah, it was, it was, he, he and was, I was like, yeah. "Yeah, you can see all the junk." I was like, "Damn, Sager, <laughs> get some bigger shorts." So <laughs> hopefully that filled the bill in terms yeah, of yeah. Yes, I can't stories. unsee that running down the street. That's like it. That. You got it. You got one, TK. I just remember the uh, again. It was it was a re revelation about Shaq because. He had a, had a bad foot, and Sager. They sent Sager in to get a question. You know, oh, yeah. doing all that stuff, and and Shaq goes, "I'm going to see the podiatrist tomorrow," and he goes, "What? I'm going to see the podiatrist," and he said, "What's that?" <laughs> and Shaq goes, "Spell it, tough guy." Yeah. <laughs> Some of the most awesome interviews. That's what I'll probably remember. Number one, of his personality and his dressing and everything. Yeah, he was. Yes. If you got carried away with the wardrobe and all that stuff, oh, yeah, yeah. he's the crazy dressing guy. No, he was, oh, he was excellent. And let me tell you something, uh, to finish up on that note. I admired the guy so much when he would spend all day doing chemo and then do the game. I like, and, and nobody knew it. And they're like, 
you know, he does chemo all day and then goes and do the game. I'm like, that to me, I was like, damn, this dude love his job. Yeah, I remember I remember taking a red eye out of the West Coast with him one night after after a playoff game. And uh, we're sitting there and he said, yeah, I got to be over at the hospital at uh, 8 o'clock. You know, it's crazy. It was, yeah, it was Amazing he, guy. He yeah. was tougher than boot leather, I'll tell you that man. much, man. How about another call? Hi, fellas. Millen here from Australia. As Chuck would say, first of all, I'm a huge, huge, huge fan of you guys. And the way I see it, Charles, you have the most amazing personality on television. With Ernie being an absolutely masterful conductor of the fun and chaotic orchestra we call Inside the NBA. My question for Chuck is, on opening night in 1994, you did not play as apparently you got some hand lotion in your eyes at an Eric Clapton concert. Could you please elucidate that story further for your loyal teamers? Thanks, guys. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure what happened, to be honest with you. My eyes had an allergic reaction uh, at an Eric Clapton concert, and I couldn't see. Um, Check I, those little white pills they give you. You got to be careful when you take those. No, no, no. This is actually, I, I, we, to this day, what's crazy, the doctor says, I think he had an aneurysm, which was scary. I was like, no, man. No, I don't. I don't. I, they're like, I, I, that's clearly not good. So they think something, uh, They to this day, I still don't know. I had some type, I think, I, you know how they, they point out, I looked into the lights. Uh, and, and to this day, I have zero idea. What I just woke up in the middle of the night and I couldn't freaking see. Jesus. That makes the uh, story a lot clearer. <laughs> I'm just telling you. Not exactly. Hey, we're big and I'll so I thought, so you, I thought, didn't you say you had some lotion on your hands that you rubbed in your eye or something? I thought, that's, it, what, no. thought that's what you said you did. Well, that's what they think I might have got lotionized, but it was weird because it didn't happen until the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. So I, that's why I say I don't actually know what happened in that moment. Because like I say, I clearly got home. But when I woke up in the middle Are of the night, sure? I'm positive I couldn't damn see when I woke up. And then they took me to the hospital, and I was just laying there. I'm like, yo, man, I don't know what the hell going on. But uh, you haven't been back to an Eric Clapton concert since. That's, that's next, next call. Hey, Chuck and Ernie. Uh, my name is Coy. I'm calling from Utah. I'm a recent steamer, and so I've been listening to a lot of the older episodes. And I want to thank Chuck for having good taste and a good opinion when it comes to guacamole, because I also think it's mush. So I wanted to know, what is a food that you like that a lot of other people don't like? Because it seems like you don't like stuff that a lot of people do. So what is something you like that other people think is gross? Thanks, guys. Well, number one, thank you for the hospitality in Utah. I had a great time at the All-Star Game. The weather was fantastic. Uh, it was great to see John Stockton, Carl Malone, and those guys. Answer the question. Uh, chitlins. I, I love knew that chitlins. Was coming. I love chitlins. You, you got to be careful with chitlins, though. You can't eat anybody chitlins. Um, chicken salad, tuna. There's one more of them I'm missing. But you have to make your own. You have to make your, you, you, or you have to know the person who make it. And you would never order that shit out. You can't eat. You can't order tuna fish out because you don't know how long it's been sitting there. How about tuna? Just tuna? No. Like, you you wouldn't you don't need a piece of tuna fish steak. Tuna, yeah. I, I don't eat fish. You know that. You're a weird dude. I don't man. eat fish. 
But you will eat tuna fish. I will eat tuna fish, but That's I don't a eat fish. No, it's not. No, it's not. No, it's not. No, it's not. See, there you go. What, no, are they just not. making up the name? Exactly. No, uh, tuna fish and uh, uh, like a piece of tuna, they're not the same in my opinion. But you'll eat tuna fish yes. salad. Yes. But, but I don't will, eat will fish. But it's got to be tuna. prepared by the right person. It's got to be prepared yeah. by the right well, person. You, well, you got to know the person. Yeah, you yes. got to know the person. Yeah. <laughs> Same thing with chicken salad. You can't eat anybody's chicken salad. You got to know the person. Oh, my God. Yeah, this is just stupid. <laughs> so so, so yeah. which, which is weirder, George Foreman naming all, every one of his sons George, or you naming your daughter after a, a, a mall? That's a great name. I know it's a great name, but I didn't know the reasoning for naming her is, hey, is and beyond just me. Just since you mentioned my daughter. Christiana. Oh, Christiana, yeah. the little princess is two to three weeks out. Wow. Uh-oh. Yep. little granddaughter. The little yeah. granddaughter is yeah. two to three That's weeks awesome. out. You're done. Wrapped around your yeah. finger. She can't be. She can't do anything little Henry can't do. Hey, <laughs> hey uh, last time we did the pod, uh, who was our guest? Uh, ben Affleck. Yes. Yeah. You guys got into a little... Uh, Give and take about donuts because you're a big Krispy Kreme guy. Yes, he's a Dunkin' Donuts. Guy. Yes, and Dunkin' Donuts—they're more cake, in my opinion. Okay, well, look. Obviously, we have loyal steamers from Dunkin' Donuts because we have reps from Dunkin' Donuts who are in look at this. the studio. What have you got? What do you got here for the Chuckster? Oh, oh it's over. Look at this action! It's over, ladies and gentlemen. Over. Let try me tell you it. something. Yeah. Try it, Chuckster. I'm going to try it. You can damn be right sure now. of that. You know, lemon is my thing. You love it so much, you, it takes you four tries to spit it out. I didn't say this wasn't good. <laughs> I told you. I did not say it wasn't good. Mm -hmm. This is really damn good. Y'all yeah. <laughs> know I'm fasting, right? I'm not supposed to be eating during the day. That ended. This is, You know what? This is worth it right here. Yeah, so y'all got a great product. I never said y'all didn't have a great product. And what's this action here? So everybody can see. Oh, yes. Holy smokes. Those were the Ben and Charles donuts? This is fantastic, y'all. Hey, man, Dunkin' Donuts, this was fantastic. I'm not going to lie to you. Always been a Dunkin' guy. Are you? Uh-huh. Because you like coffee, too, right? Over oh, this, with that. Is it, 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 that it's a wrap? Vanilla filling. Man, this was fantastic. We're going to be in the steam room the rest of the day. Look at yeah. all these donuts we got to get through. Yeah, it's a lot. See, I've been really strict on my eating. I'm fast. I eat, I eat one time a day. So it must have been good for me to break character. There it is. They spelled out not cake. Yep. <laughs> not cake. <laughs> this is a great way to end the show, by the way. This is a great no, way to end the show. No question. Oh, man alive. Man, that went right to my stomach. I guess I should sign off. <laughs> yeah. You want me to That's sign off since you're chewing? Yeah, you yeah. sign off. Hey, thanks for another episode of the Steam Room. To the great Ernie Johnson, to the legendary Tim Kiley, we love you. And thanks for the support, Law Steamers. And thank you, Dunkin' Donuts.